As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Father's Day killer Robert Farquharson could serve just 11 years jail for each of the three young sons he drowned in a Winchelsea dam. He's been given life in jail with a 33-year minimum, a sentence rejected by his shattered ex-wife. 
Robert Farquharson hid his guilt, standing by grieving former wife Cindy Gambino as their three sons were buried. Jade 10, Tyler 7 and Bailey 2 drowned when Farquharson drove them into a dam near Winchelsea on Father's Day 2005. He claimed he'd had a coughing fit and blacked out, managing to save himself and not his children. But police were convinced it was a deliberate, hateful act. Their reconstructions backing their belief he'd driven off the road, veering around a tree to reach the dam. A jury agreed and in May 2007 found him guilty. Cindy Gambino, who had herself refused to believe Farquharson could kill his children, collapsed. Two years later, that verdict was quashed and the Gambino family endured a second trial. This time, Cindy Gambino was convinced of his guilt, giving evidence against Farquharson and denying she had desecrated the boy's grave to remove his name. A different judge and a different result. Life in jail with a 33-year minimum. His own family still claiming it's a travesty of justice. And we await the day that justice prevails and this brutally wronged father of three special boys walks free. They blame the media. This was an accident. Old friend Greg King says otherwise. He gave evidence that Farquharson revealed his payback plot months before the deaths, a memory that now haunts him. For the sake of the truth, my conscience, and for the sake of three very precious little boys that we knew and loved, I had no choice but to speak out. Justice Lazary told the packed courtroom that even after 38 years in law, the tragedy of this case still defied his imagination. Three young vulnerable children betrayed by their remorseless father and left to die terrifying deaths. For each boy's death, he was given a life sentence, but the 33-year non-parole term equates to 11 years per child. In her victim impact statement, Cindy Gambino told of her lifelong pain and how she sometimes slept by her son's grave. Cindy Gambino died last week as the result of a medical emergency at her home in country Victoria. She was just 50 years old. It's 17 years since Cindy's ex-husband murdered their three sons, 10-year-old Jay, 7-year-old Tyler and 3-year-old Bailey, by deliberately driving his car into a dam on the side of the Prince's Highway near Winchelsea, west of Geelong, on Father's Day in 2005. Journalist and author Megan Norris developed a close relationship with Cindy in the years after the boys' deaths as they worked on a book together. The book is called On Father's Day. And Megan was one of our first guests on Australian True Crime back in 2017. She joined us to talk about the extraordinary experience of writing that book. Megan witnessed the terrible process through which Cindy accepted the truth of Robert's guilt in the deaths of their children and the fact that he'd planned and executed their murders as an act of revenge and cruelty aimed at her. Here is that interview re-released in honour of Cindy Gambino, her sons Jay, Tyler and Bailey, and with the deepest condolences for her surviving family, her husband Stephen and their sons. In a nutshell, he, uh, he told the first people on the scene there'd been a terrible accident, he must have done a wheel, I must have done a wheel bearing, the car veered off the road, I don't know what happened. Mm. I woke up in the water. Then he told the next, I think he told as he was having his lift back into Winch to break the news in person because he needed, see, yeah. he needed to be up close and personal to see the effect that this horrific act had had on his ex-wife. Mm. He, uh, he said in the car, 
he had a had a coughing fit mm. and must have blacked out and ended up in the water. Then he told the ambulance paramedics that arrived on the scene to treat him that he'd had a chest pain. It, it changed his tune considerably. So he said that he woke up and he was in the water. Mm. Then then he then he had a, by the time he got to Geelong Hospital and he was that night. Yeah, that yeah. night he was taken from the scene to Geelong Hospital for shock and hypothermia. Yeah. Apparently, yeah, yeah, he did have hypothermia, but there even on the scene when they when they examined him, there were none of the signs that would have supported a coughing fit that he sort of talked about a coughing fit. Then he talked about a, a, a chest pain. But he, when they listened to his chest, there was no crackling. These are the things we don't know that people can figure out when we're lying. Mm. We, I didn't know that Ambos can conduct a series of tests that would suggest whether I've had a coughing fit and passed out or not. And they did conduct those tests and they, they established that he hadn't. Well, he had not He had none of the s- symptoms that they would have expected to find in yeah. someone who'd had a, 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 not just a coughing fit, but one severe enough to yeah. cause a blackout. There was no crackling. There was no chestiness. There was not even a wheeze. And not once during the examination they conducted at the scene did he even cough. They had to ask him to cough. And when he coughed, it was a dry, unproductive cough mm. rather than a chesty, wheezy cough that would have been so severe it caused a blackout. So this sort of version that he gave was already sus. Then he told the policeman who arrived on the scene a different story, mm. uh, that he was carrying on about the wheel bearing again. Then at the hospital, two police officers that went in to interview him, he became more elaborate. Oh, that's where he was saying, don't know what happened. Jay must have tried to open the door I got out of the car first. I thought I was in a ditch. Mm-hmm. So the story that I'm knee deep, the, and he was gesturing, yes. the water's up to my chest. Then he's saying he, he thought he was in a ditch and he went to get out and then he realized he was in the dam. Mm. So the story's changed again. And he was going to walk around and help the kids out, but then he had to swim around with a view. And then he then he changed the story and said, the car started to sink when Jay opened the door. Yeah. That's pretty um, that. pretty sick to try and blame your child. Isn't it? On I found that one that, of the most yeah. troubling aspects of the entire story because as then as the court case and everything rolls on, that becomes a bigger and bigger part of his story mm. that he's – how old was Jay at the time, 12? No, he was uh, 9 or 10. Oh, my goodness. So he's much younger. He was the oldest and he was in the front passenger seat. And so Robert says. Yes, and the suggestion that he was – he even gets to a point, doesn't he, where he's – saying that he was telling Jay to calm down or something, but Jay opened the door. It's so... And that was completely disproven. Oh, it's it was... unbearable. There's so many unbearable things about this story. If we go back to the night it happened, the first people he spoke to are these young men who he's flagged over up on the highway, and he demands that they take him to his ex-wife's home. That's right. That's his priority. That's his priority, and he... They, he says uh, he flags them down on the mm. side of the road, having swum across the dam on his own and left the children to sink in the sinking car. Mm. He climbs up the embankment. If you go past there, it's quite a trek. He didn't just drive the car into the dam, so it drove across. A, it drove from one side of the road across the road onto the opposite side of the road, down through a fence, which mm. would have slowed down its carriage. So it, through a fence, collects the fence, it down an embankment, steers around a tree, yeah. not only manages to find its way to the dam, but to the far side of the dam. 
So it skipped across the water like a stone and sank at the opposite side. So when the rescue effort was looking for the car on the near side of the dam where you'd imagine to find it, oh, it's actually on the opposite side. That's the why dam. they couldn't find it. That's why they couldn't find and it. And it he knew dark, that. It was a very dark night. Yep. And the dam's murky. And he wasn't giving them any directions. Where did you go in? Dunno. Because I blacked out. I don't know. So he's told the lie. Yeah. And then the, the guys arrive on the scene and they, he says, M- car, I've just put my car in the water. Put my car in the water. Mm. And he then says, they say, where in the water? What water? Because no one could see it in the pitch dark. Oh, uh, the dam. What dam? You know, where, and even as locals, they'd pass it without really noticing it. You yeah. know? But he knew where it was. And so they, they then say, well, shall we go down and get in? Oh, no point. They've gone. And, you know, so they they then say, well, shall we call someone? Here's the phone. No, uh, no point. I want to go and tell my wife. I've got to tell my wife that the kids are gone. Isn't that revolting? Because oh, it feels like he can't, like that's the priority is to is for her to know. It's like there's no point in having done it all until she knows. No. That's and, how it felt. And was, wouldn't you think the first thing he'd say was the kids are in the water, ring, ring, yeah. ring for oh help. Oh, my God. Let's get, you know, yes. if it were genuine, the first thought would be to get that you'd be clawing at that car. Yeah. Stephen Malls, Cindy's new partner, who then went to the scene after he delivered the news dripping wet on the doorstep to mm. his shocked wife, Cindy's new partner got in the car and drove out there. Mm. And he did not stop clawing around in the freezing cold, in the dark, trying to find the car. Mm. And they were not his children. No. So wouldn't you think their own father would have been doing everything, even to get one child out? And I think that was what the police's take was too. When the police went to the hospital to talk to him about it, the story had evolved again. This time it was much more elaborate. He was saying then he'd dived down a few times. Mm. So no mention of that to the to the other people, no. the emergency workers. Oh, I tried to dive, but it was pointless. You know, I couldn't find it. All of that stuff, all of which were pro- disproved with a reenactment. They did a very careful, the police did a very careful reenactment of every stage of the story. So they closed that bit of the freeway, didn't they? And they had an identical car and they tried. With to, a qualified diver? Yeah, tried to find a scenario in which a car could drive itself with an incapacitated driver into that spot and they were unable to do that. They were, and the, and they televised, they, they had hidden cameras in the car that they sunk. They submerged a car, an identical model car in a different dam to show, you know, how long it would take from the time the door opened. And it was a matter of seconds. So the minute Farquharson opened his door, the car would have sunk. There would have been no opportunity for him to get around the other side. It, it, Jay couldn't have opened his door because it went down too quickly from the minute Farquharson opened his. Mm. And when the car was eventually retrieved from the water and put, hauled out, it was like a watery tomb, you know, that they'd got it hoisted and it was pouring water. And the the, the, the police diver that went out there, a young woman called Rebecca Caskey, mm-hmm. she went out there to, to, to see what she could find. She found Jay was part way out of the door. He almost made it. And that must be so excruciatingly painful for Cindy to live with that he Almost followed his dad out, but not his his body was not where it would have been if Robert's story had been true. Also, the smallest baby Bailey, who was two, mm. his uh, little seat buckles were undone, suggesting that his one of his brothers had tried to. Yeah, the little boy in the back, Tyler. Him, Tyler, I think that's the most heartbreaking oh. thing. Whenever you talk about this case, I think everyone that I've ever spoken to about it always says. 
if he, why didn't he look harder? Like if you hadn't, if it had been an accident, you would not have stopped. Like you said, Stephen didn't stop. And that just immediately makes you think, no, that's just. Well, Stephen's story is fascinating too, isn't he? The the mum, Cindy's newer partner, not a fan of Robert's for many reasons, but he, he keeps saying that when he arrived on the scene and was running down to the dam, Robert was standing to the side of the dam and said to him, have you got your smokes? Robert wasn't near the dam. Robert stayed on the roadside right. of the fence that, had, you know, the fence was collected and had been pulled down as yeah. the car ploughed through. He was on the roadside of the, he didn't venture near that dam. He didn't try and go down to the dam or anywhere near the dam. He stood on the roadside of the fence while everybody else ran past him. And as, as Stephen ran past him, he asked him for smokes. And then when the, the, the two young guys that had stopped and pulled over and drove him into drove him into Winchelsea. They went to get the emergency service. They knocked on doors and roused the fire brigade because yes. it's voluntary. That's right. It wasn't easy for them to get no. help, but they got it. On a Sunday night on Father's Day, yeah. the police station wasn't manned. They had to ring a number in Geelong that they didn't get put through to. They literally knocked on doors of locals they knew were in the, uh, the emergency crew. Yeah. And they got the fire brigade and everybody out there. And when those two young men returned to the scene to, and ran past Robert to join Stephen and the other people who were searching, Cindy was down at the dam. He asked them for smokes. Have you got any smokes? And the one young guy said, "I was." he was just so frustrated. He said, I just piffed the packet at him. Mm. I think that says a lot that, you know, he didn't stop. He said, I, I carried on running and piffed it in his direction. It paints the picture of like a very pathetic man. And what, what was Robert like? Well, he was the baby of the family. Uh, he stayed, and, and again, you know, the studies that, and the research that I've done into men who kill their children, in the context of separation, they usually tend to be mummy's boys. They've stayed at home a bit longer than perhaps their peers have done. He'd got an older brother and two older sisters who babied him. He was the flat-footed kid at school that couldn't play sport, so he made, he made his kids play sport and encouraged them to, play, to do all the things he didn't do. He got the kids playing soccer but couldn't do it himself. He, he'd got back problems, he reckoned, so you know he's the person that decided to set up a lawn-mowing firm in a drought. Uh, you know, He decided he'd run his own business and he'd set up a lawn a firm cutting people's lawns when there was a drought and no lawns were growing. It was doomed to fail. He was a bit of a failure. Mm. And he he when he met Cindy, she was quite strong, but she'd already lost a boyfriend. So she'd already suffered a loss of a boyfriend in a what appeared to be a suicide. And so she'd come out of it quite damaged. And Rob little Robbie Farquharson was the harmless little geeky guy around town that mm. everybody sort of liked. They knew him, but he, he wasn't setting the earth on fire. And he would be the one that would always drive Cindy home from the local disco. And and then he decides to move in with her, but she's already got herself somewhere to live. So he moves in from mum's house. So he, you know, the strength, tend to be drawn to strong, independent women, which Cindy was, mm. uh, and expects to be minded like a kid. And in fact, she says, he was like my fourth kid. He was the fourth child in the house. He was quite jealous of the time she spent with the kids. Mm. He resented the children. He teased them. It was like passive-aggressive stuff where he would whip them up and they'd be so upset they'd cry. And she'd, and all the family would say, you know, why are you doing that? Pack it in. You're, it's not fun to watch you doing this. It's cruel. Jay yeah. would be crying. So, you know, he was he was a bit mean. And, you know, he wouldn't look. You wanted the kids. You look after them. So there was all of that. There was a specific example, wasn't there, about Cindy's line dancing? Yeah, where Cindy, she liked, she didn't do much because her life was the children. And they didn't have a lot of cash. 
very strapped for cash, mm. and they were saving them. They built a little house, and they were going to move to a bigger house. And that's when it really started to come unstuck. But she liked to go out on a on a Tuesday, I think it was, line dancing. And he would, she'd come back and the baby would be screaming, his nappy would be soiled, he'd got dreadful nappy rashes, bottom would be burned, and Rob would say, oh, I'm not doing that. You know, Rob wouldn't get up at night and take a turn. And dads that do, dads that are much more involved with their children, that are much more hands-on, that will feed the children, take a turn with the night feeds and the nappy changing, that are much more involved with it, are much less likely to do this because they have that bond with the children that mm. dads like Rob, who behave like a big kid, don't have. It's so, very ingrained, no. like gender stereotypes, there here, is. isn't it? Very traditional kind of. Um, no, yeah. that's a woman's job, and it seems not very emotionally evolved. You know, as a particularly if you want to continue to be parented, yeah. I guess mm. you're going to fight becoming a parent yourself in practical ways, aren't you? I guess that makes sense. Well, even with his own mother, when he was at home, Cindy said she would see him behaving like a child, that mum would cook him his favourite Steggles chicken and he'd, yeah. and he'd swear and throw it away and wouldn't eat it because it wasn't done right. Yeah, tantruming yeah, as a grown-up. like a baby tantrum. And then he'd fall out with his dad and they'd walk past each other with their noses in the air and they wouldn't talk to each other. And she found it ridiculous. And she mm. said he was in for a shock when they moved in because she wasn't going to tolerate that. But as time moved on, he was also... I asked Cindy if it was a sort of abusive relationship, and she said it wasn't. But when I pin, pinned her down and asked specific questions about the nature of the relationship, it was actually very abusive. He mm. called her big fat mama. Mm. He denigrated her. He would wait till she was busy making cooking tea. You know, she got hot, hot veggies on, and he would grab her boob, mm. or she'd be bending over, bathing the children, and he'd grab her underneath till it hurt. Mm. You know, and there was, and it was like passive aggressive behaviour because the strength that drew him to her, he resented. Mm. And what better way to get even when she takes the ultimate power away from him and decides the relationship is over? Mm. He attacks that strength by taking away the most important thing in her life, which he told his friend he was going to do. I'm going to take away the thing that matters most, and he knew that was the kids. But, you know, is it because he was kind of one of life's losers that Cindy continued to feel pity for him through their breakup? She continued to try and help him to cope with it, try and help him have a relationship with the kids and all that stuff. And even after this terrible day, this Father's Day, she and her family supported him yeah. with everything they had and she just refused to believe. The police tried desperately to get her to believe that he meant to do it and she didn't, wouldn't. She absolutely couldn't allow herself. Mm. And I remember meeting her for the first time after the first trial when Rob was, Robert Farquharson was found guilty. of. She was devastated, wasn't she? Devastated. And she, I remember her saying to me, and I went outside to ring the magazine that I was working for um, at the time to say, you're never going to believe this story, you know, but basically what she's saying is that justice has not been done, yeah. that an innocent man is behind bars for a crime he did not commit. And she was adamant. In fact, that was her denial. And the psychiatrist that was supporting her said to Stephen that she was oper she was fun she was surviving on denial. She was functioning on denial because I guess if you were to accept that this was a deliberately calculated act designed to inflict the worst possible suffering on you, mm. you would it would cause you then to 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 look at the whole relationship and your own judgment mm. what was i what did i miss what should i have seen what was i thinking of this is some how could you believe that the man you'd had these children with and slept beside would be capable of this kind of revenge so she just 
She couldn't. And the psychiatrist said to Stephen for a long time, all he was doing was building a scaffolding around her until such time as she that denial wore away. And yeah. when she saw the crime for what it was, a crime, not an accident, she would probably fall apart. I think she would have. And she was blamed for that. Other women yes. blamed her for that denial. That's silly bitch. I remember that. Yep. I remember people saying that. What about that silly bitch yeah. who doesn't believe he, he did it and she's parading around supporting him and all. Yeah, there what was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of anger directed at her. Well, she that. had hate mail. Really? And she asked me not to mention it in the story, the initial story. She showed it me and she, she'd had hate mail from complete strangers, clearly women, yep. other mothers. How can you be so stupid? How mm. could you possibly swallow that story? And support him. What sort of a mother are you? Mm. And that just... You know, that in public, someone came up to her in the shops at Warren Ponds and basically said, What? I saw you on 60 Minutes. What an idiot you are. And she would then retreat as though she had done something wrong and she was the victim. Mm. And so the damage he intended to inflict upon her was far greater than the damage he'd actually, you know, it went on. Yeah. Whereas she, she, she wasn't deliberately choosing to be in denial, it wasn't a choice. It was an automatic coping mechanism and her mind just shut down and I can remember going to see her over the time frame that he was in jail before he was the the appeal was upheld and he was released and another trial was ordered and she she was really starting you could see that denial you could actually see it starting to crumble away from her Mm. because uh, I'd go down and she'd say I've written Rob a letter and she'd show me she'd get out these letters why why do you think he hasn't replied to any of my letters why, why do you think he won't call me? I'm not on his call list from prison. You know, his mm. sisters were and a friend was. But she's my girlfriend's on the call. She can call. He calls her. He allows his sisters to go and see him. He allows my friend, our mutual friend, to go and visit. But I'm his biggest supporter here. Mm. And he won't call me, not even on the anniversary of the children's death, not on Christmas, not on my birthday. In fact, she got a reply from his psychologist, didn't she, telling her that in his opinion it would be devastating for Rob if they were to communicate. Because he had such post-trauma. Yeah. And she was saying, what does he think it's like for me living in the same little community, passing the school the children used to go to, passing the football ground they used to train She sort of used to say he's the only person, only other person who knows how I feel. We are the only parents of these children who are lost. Yeah. She was trying to look at it from that perspective. As both as grieving parents yes. supporting one another. I think mm. that's what people found so hard. Looking on the outside, everyone's like, of course that guy did it. Well, at the time. <clears throat> but what I'm really, really fascinated by Stephen, yeah. Cindy's partner, I just find him an incredible person. How did he, so tell us a bit about him and also how did he sort of, what did he think during this He was time absolutely he, sus. He, did, yeah. he, he didn't, he, he, he was also a separated, a newly separated dad with three little children. So, you know, he was getting on with it. He didn't want to be their dad, didn't want to be Rob's children's father. He got his own children. Mm. But Rob wasn't behaving like a father. He was behaving like a spoiled child. Mm. So Stephen was a pretty strong, independent guy, Mm. but he never believed the story from the the time he arrived on the scene and Robert was just strange he said he was he was detached he was standing with his arms folded watching just no offer of help no attempt to help watching from a distance just surveying everyone like a like a supervisor watching a work project quite removed now the defense said that was shock Mm. and of course Stephen's own children 
were in the car that went to the dam. That, they yeah. went with the grandparents to mm. the dam. One of them was already in Cindy's car. So his kids are friends with these kids yes. and they're, they're at the scene understanding that Cindy's kids are under the water. They're, so they're, they're also hearing the, 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 the emergency <clears> workers <throat> saying to Stephen, who was hypothermic, get out of the water, you'll drown, you'll die. We don't want another casualty. Yeah. Get out of the water. And they were terrified that dad was going to die. Mm. And then there's all this guilt for them, you know, but they were traumatized, but they were not considered victims of a crime. There was no compensation for them, mm. but they were just as much victims of that crime, and it went on a long time. So, did Stephen and Cindy ever argue? Did he ever push the point with her? Did he ever? Did he ever say, "Snap out of it"? Of course, Robert did this on purpose. Did he? He didn't. And I know wow. when I went to do, he didn't because he could see that that's how she was surviving. And I think he'd been with her to a psychiatric appointment where, basically, he was being told we we're supporting her. This is how she's coping right now. Time, time will change the situation and you need to be there for her when that happens. So when I went down and she'd be showing me these letters, you could see that she was already questioning, you know, why wouldn't he want to look me in the eye? I just mm. want to look him in the eye. I just want him to tell me what he knows. Why, why do you think he won't do that? I said, why do you think? She said, well, I don't know, you know. I don't think he did it, but maybe he just feels too guilty. But I said, are you sure that's what you think? There That's was a tap. There way was of abusing, isn't it? It yes. was withholding the information. Let her torture herself. And, yeah. Watch her torture herself. Yeah. But he, there was a. The police were very suspicious mm. afterwards, and it became a murder inquiry within twenty four hours, forty eight hours. Yeah. So the, the police tapped the phone lines. So they were re secretly recording conversations between Robert and Cindy, but no one knew. The police knew, and um, and one of the phone calls that he made to Cindy it was all about himself. Imagine what this is like for me. Mm. Oh, you know, she says, I'm feeling really bad. I'm having a bad day. Well, imagine what it's like for me. It's all about himself. There was no empathy for her. And then she said, tell me again about what happened. She said, well, how come the light, who turned the lights off yeah. then? Well, what about the ignition? Who turned the ignition off? And why was the car heater turned off? You said you turned it on because of the coughing fit. Mm. And that must have caused the coughing fit. That was like another evolving account. Right. So if that happened and you blacked out, the lights would be on. The ignition would still be on when the car hit the water. And the heater would still be on, but they were all turned off. How do you explain that? And he said, oh, I don't know, I might have turned them off or something. Maybe I took... He didn't mention that Jay had turned them off, although he did later in the trial try and say that one of the kids had done that. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greg had gone down to the fish and ship shop on a Friday night about three months before this happened, the, mm. this tragedy happened. And he'd gone in with his kids to get some chips to go with some chops that mum was cooking at home. Yeah. And it sticks in my mind. Yeah. And he, he saw Rob pull, pull up outside and he went over to the car and leaned into the car. Cindy pulled up in her car and walked past them all and went into the fish and chip shop. And he was really vitriolic. You know, he was really angry. And he said, oh, you know, he's driving around. She's driving around in the good car while I've got the shit car. Oh, that's right. In the separation, he had she a got the good car. issue about that and He car. got the shit car, yeah. She, you know, she's driving around in the good car. And now they're going to move in together. And none of that was true. Yeah. Now they're going to move in together and, you know, and they're even going to get married. And it was all getting really angry. And he then said, you know, uh, I hate them. And, I, you know, and he, Greg couldn't remember the whole. Initially, if you imagine how traumatized he was when this tragedy happened, because yeah. Robert had indicated that there was going to something terrible was going to happen. He was going to do something. He'd had a dream. He reckoned he'd had a dream. And in that dream, he dreamed that he was in an accident and the kids were with him. And only he survived and the kids didn't make it. And it would be on a special day, like Father's Day. And it might involve a dam. And it would be the last time that she'd, he would be the last person to see those children alive. And that would be, he would take away the most important thing that mattered to her. And he'd pay her back big time. He'd pay her back big time. That was the quote. Nobody does that to me and gets away with it, he said. Oh, I'm going to pay her back big time. And Greg said, what do you mean? And that's when he elaborated on the dream and the, and the dam. Mm. And Greg said, oh, no one even says that, mate. That's sick. No one even thinks that thought, dreams that thought. You know, but he went home thinking, what a load of rubbish. Because at that stage, Robert was saying a lot of crazy things. He told some woman down the pub that he was going to uh, take his kids away. And she thought he meant through access or custody. Mm. Well, that's what Greg said. He said mm. he went home to the chops and he said to his wife, I've just had this crazy conversation with Rob Farquharson. And they agreed, oh, he talks a lot of shit. They probably thought he's a loser. Yeah, they, know, yeah. Dismissing. She said she didn't even really remember it because... It was just, just more of his rubbish yeah. and it was just more of the same. And yeah. also Greg recounted a, an episode where some time before Robert, Robert was a known grizzler. He yes. was a known complainer. So people didn't, you know, when people grizzle all yep. the time, it's in through one ear. Yeah. And basically it was like, mm, Rob's at it again. And Robert said, uh, Greg had seen him sitting in his car on the side of the highway by the service station. And when Greg said, what were you doing there? Oh, I was thinking of collecting a truck and ending it all, you know. That's so he was awesome. toying with this idea for quite a long time of suicide. Yes. So he was, you know, t toying with the idea of checking out. And then on another occasion, Greg saw him somewhere else and he reckoned, oh, he told someone else that he'd had a blackout in the car. He was sort of laying the ground. Oh, I don't know what happened. I had a bit of a blackout in the car near the servo, near the roadhouse. And the guy said, you better go and get that checked, the friend said. So there was a little bit of laying the ground going on. There was also some indication or some hint in the trial that he might have been researching coughs and cope, that he might have gone to the local library and looked it up, and he might have looked it up on his sister's computer. That's this syndrome whereby you can cough until you pass yeah, out. Yeah, so he, he knew a bit think, about it. Do you think, I mean, I, I as I was reading the actual sort of chronology of the day, which is just a very normal day. He's gone to work and then he's got access to his kids for a few hours and he's to drop them off home in time for baths and dinner mm. and bed because they got school the next day. How long do you think he was planning it? Do you think it was a spur of the moment? I'm driving past a dam. I'm going to do this. Or do you think it was 
planned? Well, I think it was planned. I always thought it was planned because he wow. was very specific about mentioning it happening on a special date like Father's Day. And he didn't seem to have anything to be angry about that day. In fact, Cindy thought that in recent times they'd been getting along really well and he'd been coping really well with everything. And But that's not unusual because, really? you know, if people have been really depressed, he was very depressed mm. and he was put on antidepressants for a while. People, when they're really depressed, they don't do anything. They haven't got... That's true. They haven't got the yes. effort, the energy, so they just lie around and they don't do anything. They they can't think. After a few months on antidepressants, the sun starts to rise a bit, mm. and that's when the anger kicks in. You know, they've got a bit more of an adrenaline rush. Bit of the anger, bit of action comes in that wasn't there before, and that's when he started to get really snarly. He was stalking Cindy. Mm. He was driving, doing drive-bys of the house, and getting really angry that Stephen's car was there. Mm. He Did turned you know he that. was doing that? Yes, he turned up one night and went off his rocker because you know Stephen was there and they were cooking chicken or something, and he got really angry about that. But he was like keeping tabs on her. Now that's not unusual, and that takes effort. Yeah. So this wasn't immediately. He was depressed. And went to see a psychologist after the breakup. But she thought he was moving on. You know, he was talk, but he wasn't. He was he was brooding. He was brooding. That thought was germinating in his head for a while. It was three months before the tragedy that he had the conversation with Greg. And poor Greg, being so traumatized by what had happened, remembered it in snatches. When Greg got a phone call from someone that night after the car went into the dam, he got a phone call saying, Rob's been in an accident, the car's gone in the dam, and the kids have gone. Greg went, it must have been a massive shock because oh. he couldn't function, he couldn't go to the funeral because he couldn't look at Robert Farkas and he kept thinking of this conversation. It was tormenting him. So at work he was bursting into tears and he couldn't sleep. And the boss at work, he worked for a bus company, was a former police officer. Mm. And he said, he rang a friend at the police station in Geelong and said, I think you need to talk to Greg King. Greg is suffering post-traumatic stress to the point where he's having these waking and waking visions like while he's in daytime not while he's asleep so he's having these flashbacks where in which he sees drowning children struggling in water in a car and that's so typical most of the crime stories that I've done where people something awful has happened people do get these flashbacks I did the Port Arthur shootings and a lot of the survivors there were having flashbacks and Greg describes classic post-traumatic flashbacks you would think Robert would be having those himself because he was the one in the car but no he isn't Greg gave his initial <coughs> statement, then he did an amendment. Then over the coming weeks, he, he remember, I think over the period of about a month, he remembered more. Yeah. And he kept ringing the detective saying, well, I've remembered this. So Gerard Clancy, who was the main detective on the case, said, write it all down. Just write, write it all down. And when you think you've remembered everything you can remember, come back and see me. So Greg remembered much more detail. It didn't change. His, orig- his original statement never changed. It just remembered more detail. Yeah. So he went in in December and he said, this is what I remember. And he sat down with the statement he'd typed up on the computer and Gerard did a completely new statement, all in chronological order, with every detail that Greg remembered. And that's when Greg said, he said, I'm going to kill him. I hate him. I hate him. That's when Greg remembered that. Now, that became known as the extreme version of the fish and chip shop co- conversation that became the controversial statement and the linchpin which got robert yeah. out of jail this idea that oh well he keeps changing his story, story. he never changed it no. it was always the same story with more info yeah. but the defense used that to argue and what they also argued robert was jailed mm. and greg imagine being gregory king in that community mm. tiny little town mm. 
where Greg has played football with Robert, gone to his wedding, they've been to each other's homes, and he's having to dob in his best friend, and the whole community is saying, how can you say that? You know, nobody wanted to believe it. No one wanted to. So he's instantly like a leper in that community, and so are his children, and so is his wife. It was awful for them. But he, he never wavered. Why would, you, why would you make up something like oh, yeah. that? I mean, it's the sickest thing to make up, and he was so clearly traumatised. Yeah. Yeah. The town, Winchelsea, you, you've said to me before, it's still a town divided, haven't you, oh, about this case? Is that right? Mm. They won't talk about it. Cindy has not only been victimised by her husband's crime, it goes on. No one in that town wants to talk about it. It's almost like the stain on Winchelsea is the same as the stain on Mowie from the Jaden Lesky case. Yeah. You become defined by the crime <clears throat> that occurred there. Mm. But Cindy is a, is a social leper in that town. She really is. She's got very few friends, very few. And the friends that she has were not friends that she had before this happened. Wow. So, you know, I just think the victimization goes on. So why is she being blamed? Which she is, you know, oh, you're so stupid. You shouldn't have believed him in the first place. There are people that still say it's an accident and, and want to believe that's, that Greg King is a social leper mm. and remains so in that community. Tell us about the moment when, or the, the time when she changed her mind. Well, as I said, I've been going down there over a period of time before the second trial began. And this was where Robert was. And I thought it was really interesting. I was actually, I went down the day after he was released from prison. It was right on Christmas time. And she told me the previous week she was actually looking forward to Christmas. She got a second new baby. Mm. So she got a toddler and a new baby boy. And she was rocking the baby and saying, I'm actually feeling a little bit better. I, I, I'm feeling a bit better. I said, what, what's happening with Robert in prison? She said, well, he's appealed and he'll either be found innocent or whatever. But what she hadn't anticipated was that he might be let out, but that didn't make, mean he was innocent. It meant he'd have to stand trial all over again. She hadn't anticipated going through the whole trial all okay. over again mm. and reliving it all over again. So she she was when she found out that he'd been let out, with another trial, she was panicking. And I, I thought it was interesting. And I said to her, but you always thought he was innocent. You told me you always thought he was innocent. And now he's been let out of jail. Wouldn't you be pleased then if you're spearheading a campaign to clear his name? And she said, no, because I have to go through a second trial and relive the ordeal all over again. I said, well, what did you think would happen? And she said, I thought they'd chuck it out and he'd stay there or they'd uphold it and he'd be free. But now I've got to relive the pain all over again. And she said, I'm frightened of seeing him. I said, but you wanted to see him. Mm. Well, he hasn't seen me in prison. He hasn't wanted to talk to me. He hasn't sent me a card. There's been no contact. So I don't know. I don't know why he'd be doing that. And I thought, and I said to Stephen that day before I left, I said, I think she's seeing it, don't you? He said, she doesn't want to. Wow. But I think she is seeing it. She's asking the question over. It was tormenting her. She was asking it, but why, but why? And then when he came out of uh, prison, and pending a new trial, a, 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 an unexpected witness that had not come forward in the first trial came forward. And this woman turned out to be a motorist who had actually followed his car with the children along that road through Winchelsea on that night towards oh Winchelsea. Mm. And she described, and she'd, she'd seen the case on the news. She'd seen the car being hauled from the dam. But so many people had come forward and then he was arrested. And she was she was very ill at the time and was undergoing test for cancer and was found out to have cancer. So she said, look, they've arrested the guy. They've got enough information. They don't need me. Mm. And she didn't come forward. But having seen him 
basically being let off the hook and due to stand trial again. She said, I, I'm better now, I'm over my cancer, I have to tell. So she went to the local police station and reported what she'd seen. So the police then went down to see her and they'd got this witness, this eyewitness account of the last person to see the children alive. And she described him driving along that straight stretch of road, 100k, that road, crawling along the road, braking, slowing down, driving, speeding off, braking, slowing down, constantly looking to the right, looking to the right, to like the he paddock. Was looking for looking, the dam. Like he was slowing down, looking for something. Mm. And she said to, she had a daughter and a friend in the car, what is that idiot doing? Mm. And she, she actually flashed her heads, headlights at him because she thought he might be drunk or he might cause an accident. So she then pulled out and indicated because she thought he was dangerous, she was going to overtake him. And as she overtook him, she saw him behind the wheel with his gaze fixed on the right. But she, she sort of gestured to him, but he didn't see her. He was looking past her mm. into the darkness to where that dam was. And they, they went. she overtook, looked in her rear vision mirror and went over the overpass into Winchelsea. She saw the headlights veering off, come over the overpass, veer off to the right. So she said to the passengers in the car, he must have been turning off. He must have been looking for a turning. She saw the lights veering off. Now, when she passed, what's significant is that she could see straight into the, the interior of the car. There was no coughing. He was focused. She said he was like a man on a mission. He was focused. He wasn't coughing. There was no evidence of him coughing. But she said she saw three children strapped in the back seat. Not two, three. She, she so Jay wasn't sitting in the front seat. She described him being strapped into them. She was adamant about that, that there were three small boys. And she saw enough to know there were three small boys in the back three seat. Three small boys strapped into the back seat, which had doors that could not be opened yes. from the inside. Yes. Yeah. And him looking off yeah. as though he's trying to find this paddock with the dam in it. Yeah. And one of the baby locks... One of the baby locks had been put down. The, the car, that one of the uh, doors in the back of the car was, was faulty, which meant that even without a baby lock, it could only be opened from the outside. Yeah. The other back passenger door could be opened, but someone had put the baby lock on that to make sure it couldn't. He, he claimed in his testimony, and he didn't give evidence at all in his first trial, good job, because the, he was a terrible witness. And the minute he opened his mouth... He sealed his own fate, really. But in the second trial, he did give evidence. And there was a lot of questions asked about the children and where they were in the car. And he implied that maybe the toddler had reached right away the way over from one side of the car to the other and turned the baby lock on. Mm. And it was just preposterous. I think that if the, the Crown described it as Farquharson's greatest hits. His account of the crime was described as Farquharson's greatest hits because it was just rubbish. So through all of this, Cindy's just unable to stay in denial. Well, after hearing that there was another witness, yeah. she rang me and she said, there's another witness. There's an, and She couldn't tell me what it was, but she said, they, the police can't tell me what it is, but I know there's another witness. Yeah. And when she was aware of what that witness had to say, it changed everything. So she'd already had this period where, I think he was in jail two years. So yeah. She'd already had this period where he wouldn't contact her, wouldn't talk to her, and he was claiming he was too traumatized. Yeah. All that time to think things through, and it was slowly crumbling. And then this witness came forward just before Christmas. I think she gave her a, a full statement in January. So by the time it went to court a second time, she she was angry and she felt like she'd failed her children. So, you know, she said, last time I was a voice for Robert. Yeah. And my kids had no voice in court. This time I'm there. I'm going to look him in the eye, the bastard. I'm there for my my kids this time. And mm. she was. She was, <sighs> like, she was. She was like a wounded animal in court. 
So he was found guilty and um, and sent to jail for the rest of his life. And and she, yes, and she was the she was the key witness. Dawn Waite, the the motorist, and Cindy were the, now the defence. The first time they must have thought they had a gift from heaven because Cindy was their main witness yeah. for the defence. Second time round, she's their worst nightmare. Yeah. And what do they do? They use she's victimised again. They use her own denial mm. against her. Oh, you told this magazine that. You thought he was an innocent man. You told 60 Minutes you didn't believe he was guilty. Now you're changing your mind. And she said, well, five years is a long time to think it through. And, you know, I've got, I'm not so, I've, I've got more clarity and I know he did it. So how are they now? How, how is this family now? I know, I know that you're, you, you keep sporadically in touch or you're aware of, of how they're going. So we've got Cindy and her did she she marry Stephen? She and yeah, she married. Ma- I went to the wedding. She married Stephen. They had two little boys together. Yeah. She spoke very openly about her difficulty with bonding with the first of those two boys, but she felt that by the second she was pulling it together and and able to parent again and excited about being someone's mum again. How are they travelling now? Very badly. Mm. I mean, the whole aim of crimes like this, it's called spousal revenge, is to inflict a lifelong suffering, to destroy you and rob you of any future hope and joy. He has basically succeeded. The minute he drove off the road, he succeeded. She doesn't even feel guilty anymore. She feels nothing. And and she, she literally physically is falling apart. She's made two or three attempts at suicide. Oh, my God. She She actually tried to drive a car into a tree at one stage, uh, and that was at, that was actually uh, the car hit a pole close to where the children went. The car went into the dam, really almost on that site. I met Cindy at Megan's book launch, and um, I just don't even know how you get through every day. She she doesn't, and I think she's become more and more displaced. I can more and more disconnected. Mm. And I I last time I saw her um, late last year, I came down and I went down to Geelong and I saw her, and she. She was really out of it in a way that was just utterly disconnected from life. I can't, she's a, an absolute shell of a mother and she, she, she just sleeps all the time. She has trouble getting out of bed to get dressed. She's had some sort of electromagnetic shock treatment. It's almost like the brain when it isn't functioning stops working. So she's had this treatment, which is to sort of stimulate the production of those feel good things, chemicals in your brain. It last very brief. She rang me after she'd had the first lot and said she felt great for a while. It doesn't work. And years and years and years of being on medic, heavy, heavy medication. But it's not just mental anymore. It's physical. So she's had frozen shoulders. She's had operations. She's just not coping. Just not. And I think she'd like to check out, but she can't because of her own belief. She She's Catholic and she doesn't believe in that. And she said she wouldn't cause that pain to her own mother because she knows what it feels like to be a mother and lose your children. But at the same time, life holds nothing for her. We're, we're sort of attuned in the media to stories that of, of women who are able to somehow miraculously come out of this and uh, find purpose and dedicate their life to the memory of the kids and sort of this heroic ending to this story. We're not used to... Because... Because she's not out here blogging about it because she can't get out of bed. She, it well, would be very pain. It's painful for people to see that kind of it trauma is, because yeah. it's frightening, I think. Oh, it's absolutely. To... Well, people like the survivor stories, we don't do, they? We do, we do. We like, we yes. devour the survivors. So, that, you know, there's the Rosie Batties that get on a campaign. Absolutely. Rosie's such a great example. I was trying to think, who am I thinking of? It's Rosie. We look at her and we go, 
I don't know how she's doing this, but what a hero, and she is. But we, we don't hear about the Cindy's. I spoke with an expert in post-traumatic stress, Dr. Michael Epstein, and he's yeah. an, ex, an Australian expert in post-traumatic stress. And he said, if you get a rubber band and you break it and it snaps, you can yeah. tie a knot in it. The knot's always there. And it's always got a weakness. She needs people to understand this is meant to be an endless suffering, and it is. Yeah. And she, would, she said, it would have been kinder if he killed me. And that was... Um when you wrote the book and launched it, and, and that was a promise you made to Cindy, wasn't it, that mm. you would write the book. Tell us a bit about that, the well, process of writing it and it was, why you did it. It was really painful, this book to write, because I went from being a court reporter sitting in court listening to the case. And believe me, there were a lot of people on that press bench that said, oh, he'll walk, he didn't do this, it's an excellent poor bloke. be a lot of people on the media that mm. bench that thought that. But what what for me was... After the first trial, I just kept in touch because I thought she's really going to bite the dust and when she does, it's going to be bad, you yeah. know. And I kept in touch. I didn't know there was going to be another trial. Mm. I didn't keep in touch for any motive, only then it really touched me, that story. And then I started looking into other women as well and it was the subject that interested me. And then he was let out of jail and then there was a second trial and she did try. She did try and fight back. She said, right, he's not going to ruin the rest of my life. Yeah. I'm going to get married. And I'm going to have more children. You know, she did fight back. Mm. She couldn't sustain it. But I promised her, she said, when this is over, you know, I, I need people to understand what this is like to be me because mm. people pay a lot of, the crime is defined by Robert's name. She, I said I would. And then there was another trial. So I followed that. That went for ages. And then there was another appeal and I followed that and he lost. And then he appealed again. Mm. He, he sought leave to take it to Canberra. And that was finally kicked out. It went on and on and on. But my interviews with her were so hard because because she suffers post-trauma, she feels nothing. So I would drive down to Winchelsea, interview her sitting outside on the veranda at her house with icy winds in winter. I'd, I'd literally, she used to lend me her purple dressing gown and I'd wrap a blanket round myself and I'd take shorthand notes with because I don't do tapes. I do old-fashioned shorthand. With my fingers were blue, mm. and she'd smoke and smoke and drink V's, and she would feel nothing, and she would forget to say, "Would you like a drink? Do you want?" She yeah. would even forget about the children, and so you'd find the Stephen's children from his first relationship that were living with them that the one couldn't bear to hear it. He was living with it, so he would do annoying things like get on the ride on mower and go round and round and round us, making a noise because he couldn't. Bear to hear it. He was living with every painful second. Just everyone dealing with the trauma in their yeah. own little way. And then a little, one of the babies came out once, toddling out, and he was cold. And Cindy, it's not deliberate. You know, she, yeah. her mind was elsewhere. She's just so traumatized. He came out and he climbed onto my knee while, while Stephen was making a drink. Underneath the blanket I had round me, underneath the dressing gown, and snuggled up to me and I wrapped it round. And I just carried on taking notes. Mm. I got a grandson at home that age at that time. And later on, it was like, where's, where's Isaiah? Where's Isaiah? And I opened the, <laughs> the blanket opened and there the blanket he was. <laughs> he's in here fast asleep. And by the way, I changed his nappy while you were inside getting another smoke. Yeah. And I just did that instinctively. But this was a little boy that just needed warm, you know, and they loved their children dearly. But it was this detached from, every, I can't, emotionally detached from everything and physically detached too. I hate to do this, but before we finish this conversation I need to ask what you know of Robert's time Robert's like life now in prison do you know anything about not very much we 
Uh, certainly, the family, uh, his family, have stood by him. Right, I think okay. his fam, his family, I think his family are, remain in the denial that Cindy was in because they're casualties too. They're yeah. casualties, yeah. and he remains uh, a much watched prisoner. That I, pretty certain, he's still at Port Phillip or Barwon, one of the prison, big prisons, high security prison down there. And I'd imagine he's got a very lonely life. Mm. He's he will spend his life in protective custody, because. Because of the nature of the crime he's committed, he would be a high target in prison. Mm. Um, I know that there was some talk. He came to court once limping badly. Yeah. He claimed it was because he'd had another blackout. This was, though, bolstering the case that he got about his tendency to blackout through coughing. And he had a, a bit of a fit where his sister observed it at home, but that was a bit fortuitous while he was on bail, mm. waiting sec- the second trial. But my instinct is that's not how he got his leg injury. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt very much if that's how he got his leg injury. You'll notice we've also released a short conversation recorded late last week with Megan Norris, who's remained in contact with Cindy and her second husband, Stephen. She joined Emily Webb to reflect on the news of Cindy's passing. And you can also pre-order Megan's upcoming book, Messiah's Bride, now through the link in our show notes. It's out in August through Penguin Publishing. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.